landlocked and at the ancient crossroads of the Mongol, Persian, Alexandrian, and British empires, Afghanistan has long held a history as a conduit for other peoples. In more recent history, the Soviet occupation from 1979 to 1989 was only succeeded very briefly by a local Taliban coalition to then be knocked out by the United States in 2001. With the American military finally leaving its 20-year occupation behind, the Afghani peoples of various Pashtun and other assorted tribes once again look to an uncertain future with the firm knowledge that whoever tries to conquer them next will likely reaffirm the Afghanistan sobriquet of the Graveyard of Empires. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. I am Hank Oslo. I'm joined here by Adam Smith. There's two organizations that deliver to Afghanistan. FedEx is one of them, and our guest tonight uh, works for the other guys. Uh, Old Hickory, how are you doing tonight? Good. How are you guys doing? Just fine. Uh, if you haven't been watching the news, uh, apparently we won. Yeah, I'm enjoying my freedom. Thanks for uh, protecting us from the invasion from the middle of Asia. Yeah, they We're, said they could, it was an unwinnable war. I guess they're wrong. Mission you know, all accomplished. We have to do is really, really put our minds to it, and it's kind of the uh, the Texas sharpshooter. You uh, you you mag dump into the barn, and you draw a big old circle around it, and you say. Goddamn, 100% accuracy, mission accomplished, objectives achieved. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. That's how every uh, foreign policy uh, analysis goes at the federal level. Well, I have a kind of an obvious question. Why the hell are, were we there this much longer after uh, our patron saint Obama got bin Laden 10 years ago, right before the election, coincidentally, of course? Yeah, I... I think that's a great question. I, I think you got to go all the way back to the original invasion and just look at how the forces were arrayed for that deal. You know, most of the most of the people that went to Afghanistan in the early days, uh, the horse soldiers, all of these things that you see in the media now, they were not in Afghanistan to capture bin Laden. They had the primary task of installing a new government there. And that was the vast majority of U.S. troops and then their indigenous partners which at the time was the Northern Alliance, but a very small group of people actually were pursuing targeted intel to capture Osama bin Laden. And it's not really a surprise that he got away based on, you know, the relatively bare bones effort, physical presence there to capture him. Uh, not to say that it, it would be easy just to send, you know, pretty much all of your soft and most of your 
high-end infantry guys at once and on short notice but if you really look at the effort and how it laid out it was set for an occupation from the beginning uh whether or not people at all levels realized it which they didn't of course obviously but some people at least had the the idea that this was going to be a semi-permanent uh fixture of military there and kind of when you pair that up with what happened in iraq you know 18 or 20 23 months later uh seems kind of obvious what was uh, there was a squeeze going on there with iran so and let's not forget where we actually found osama bin laden uh, at some point, it's pretty obvious that he was retained or was on retainer uh, by the Pakistani intelligence agency, the uh, the ISI, because he was discovered holed up in a you know pretty decent compound in essentially the geographic uh, equivalent of Falls Church in Pakistan, like a few miles, a nice uh, midsummer jog to their, uh, their main military academy. Not exactly a place that you hide out if you're trying to lay low, more sort of a safe house arrangement. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. I mean, it, I think a lot, most people in the mainstream in the U.S. don't realize how complex and uh, deep the U.S. relationship with Pakistan is. But, you know, if you look at their behavior and the things that go on in and out of there, um, outside of their borders, within their borders, uh, their nuclear capability, it, it seems like that would be the country that would be getting the North Korea treatment or the, uh, you know, the uh, axis of evil stuff. But that never happens. In fact, you hardly ever hear the media or the government say anything negative about Pakistan in any way. And I think it's really just more of a U.S. intelligence agency uh kind of like black box where they can just shove things in there and, uh, you know, let them fester and, and grow and then, you know, deal with it uh, and use that, you know, cause nobody can look inside, you know, not even, not even our Intel guys, they just push everything in there. And then when it boils over, they just sort of take advantage of it. Right. I mean, look how much of the fighting in Afghanistan was just based out of Pakistan or the political targeted political assassinations that go on within and without the country. I mean, this is not a country that doesn't have any U.S. intelligence agency presence. This is a country that has, like, very large, permanent U.S. intelligence apparatus there all the time, working with these people constantly. You know, it's one of the more intriguing uh, career-benefiting uh, assignments, to be honest. People spend years of their life there. So the fact that something like that could happen and it would just be an utter mystery is, I guess, technically possible, but it just... It, you know, it strains the, you know, your, your ability to, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how you can reconcile that with the reality of our relationship with Pakistan. So, well, going back a little bit to when the United States, uh, first deployed soldiers to Afghanistan, I remember this, uh, actually after nine 11 reading in the ye old, uh, newsprint, uh, newspaper and, it was talking about Operation Anaconda or something like that. I think that was one of the earlier, at least publicized ones. I'm sure there was stuff that wasn't publicized. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, Old Hickory, because I don't have it in front of me, but I do recall hearing from either a soldier or defense analyst or uh, someone, someone along those lines uh, saying that the speed at which the U.S. military deployed to Afghanistan after 9-11 uh, was faster than they would have 
thought possible. And that led them to speculate that it may have been likely that there was either uh, plans for this uh, prior to 9-11 or who knows, like uh, there was, there was some, some way that they got the, uh, the soldiers out there as quick as they did. Uh, do you have any thoughts or comments on the speed at which the uh, U.S. intervention against the Taliban or whoever was over there at the time was carried out? Uh, do you think it was faster than what would be expected if it was simply a reaction or do you think it was something that was in the works beforehand? I don't think it was something that was planned out when when that event happened and it was determined that, you know, bin Laden's in Afghanistan, nobody really had a clue what to do. I mean, that was at almost every level from bottom to top, you know, that we had sent troops to Afghanistan off and on over the years, just like we do almost every country over there. And, you know, you can fly troops into Kabul or some area like that and maybe do a little bit of training or you know, talking to them and a little bit of advising, if you will, kind of getting a lay of the land and see what how things work there. But once you do an invasion, all that stuff's not, it doesn't count anymore because you're not playing by their rules. You're just bringing all your own forces and all your own equipment and you have all your own infrastructure requirements. But you look at a place like Afghanistan, you know, the Russians and other people, including the actual Afghani government, had built quite a bit of infrastructure, airports and things like that. And they were just right for the taking. It's not It's not like they were well defended with any kind of anti-aircraft scheme or anything like that. So even a small, well-trained group of people could swoop right in and just seize it, and especially if you have a partner force, which they did. Of course, they had the Northern Alliance. That was the the big partners there from, from the northern part of the country and decided they were just going to pair up with us and use tremendous air power, uh, well-directed air power, and just obliterated pretty much everything, you know, up to that point for – uh, over, I guess, 20, almost 20 years at that point, there hadn't really been any first world countries fighting there. So most of the battles were uh, tribal, small skirmishes, uh, political battles. You know, there's violence, political violence, but no large scale operations have been going on. So it's not exactly like they were hardened against a U.S. invasion. So from a practical standpoint, you don't really need much other than an airport to land troops. And right. that's what they did. They went in really fast and they got the things they needed early on and um, set up bases right on the periphery of the country and just went in, you know. Not, what not what is different. that island south of India that is used as a U.S. air base? I think it was used in the Afghanistan um, bombing campaigns. Uh, I don't know if Diego Garcia. Is. I yeah. think that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's an Air Force base. And, and so conceivably, places like that are within the u.s military's control around the world and and i i, I believe that you know it, it's certainly possible to deploy an airstrike pretty rapidly given the footprint of the u.s airbase um map around the world that that makes sense and i guess the the full scale of iraq never really happened in afghanistan it was always seemingly in the uh thousands maybe not even tens of thousands of soldiers i think it, it always seemed to be less than that um, if I have my numbers correct, but yeah, I, I guess that's, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, and everybody was basically on board with the invasion. There were even statements of, uh, you know, we're, we're willing to cooperate, uh, in your, your objectives here from Russia, which is practically right next door. Uh, all of the neighboring countries essentially were completely on board 
to the extent that, I mean, even Iran at the time, this is well before the uh, the axis of evil uh, speech that sort of soured uh, relations permanently. But they, I believe, uh, were turning over uh, some people that had a hold up in their country that were plausibly affiliated with the Taliban. But I mean, my question, so, and I think this kind of bears on the current uh, situation. When when we talk about like invading Afghanistan and fighting the Taliban, like obviously no government is monolithic. We just saw like large factions of the United States government indicting other factions of the government. But particularly in Afghanistan, there's this sort of uh, stereotype of like my tribal society, my Pashtunwala. Uh, like everybody only beholden to his group of like 200 people that he knows. But I mean, how much coherency did or does, and they've evolved over time, the Taliban have? Like to what extent, if there's a, a memo issued by like the official Taliban, how much uh, sway does that have, I guess? Well, that's really the... To me, the most interesting thing to analyze about places like Afghanistan, you know, I think I've said this before, but anyone and everyone can claim to be Taliban when it suits them or when it benefits them to do it. And uh, anyone can deny they are when it comes time to pay their little, you know, tax or whatever the case may be. Um, There's really not been a lot of central control ever since, I guess, really the Russians finally left left. You know, the Taliban had built their reputation on fighting against occupiers and really fighting against the uh, the traitors as they considered them in their own country that worked with the Russian occupation. But once that was gone, it, it kind of devolved back into the tribal loyalties and uh, just com- completely uh, continuous ethnic po- politics and eth- ethnic political violence. And really, you have a place in Afghanistan that is so much more raw and natural where, you know, you have the government in the big cities. I, I would take it all the way back to, like, Roman-era history, where you have these giant, sprawling cities, you know, kind of speckled throughout the empire. And everything outside of that, it's, can we make a deal with the locals and see if they'll work with us, or are we going to have to fight with these guys constantly? And, you know, the locals are saying, well, we'll fight with them until we can get the kind of deal that suits us. And then it just goes on and on forever. And it's a constant battle. Everybody never really falls under a single banner, you know, as much as that's the way the story likes to be told. But that's not really how it works. And it's certainly not how it worked in Afghanistan. You know, for a long time, one of the, the critical tasks that they had everybody pursuing was to try to get these outlying areas, right? This is the big speech we got to get these rural areas the outlying areas the people that don't respect the government to feel like they have a part in this government too you know because if they don't commit to the government then we'll never be able to have peace here you know it's like well that's doesn't even happen in the united states <laughs> you know i like what kind of dream world are you living in here where people that are so far away from the center of power so far away from paved roads you know and from infrastructure and resources that you're going to be able to go in and give them, I guess, like the Martin Luther King speech or something and, and change their mind about it. You know, some of these people have never even seen their capital cities. A lot of them, actually. You know, they're, they're born and they die within the confines of a big square pasture or a big uh, mountaintop or a, a big valley that floods twice a year. Right. That's all they know. 
So when somebody comes down to their area and tells them, hey, you're you're with the Taliban now, it's just kind of like shrug your shoulders, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, man. You know, that's kind of the approach that most of them have. Um, just want to be left alone and do their thing in their little isolated area. And that's most of the country. You know, most of Afghanistan lives in existence uh, of that nature. They're, they're not a cosmopolitan or a metropolitan country by any means. So, I mean, I guess yeah. it's kind of a, a weird angle to take that question, but that's really what it boils down to is the relationship between the rural people and the city folks. And, you know, that's how the country's divided. That's how most countries have been divided throughout history and really everywhere. So... That does make sense. And just for some sort of uh, intuitive context, Afghanistan is basically the same size and area as Texas, but with a shitload of mountains. So right. if you can imagine like Texas, except for instead of uh, Houston, Dallas and Austin, uh, you take away two of those cities uh, they're all spread out over a series of mountain ranges going across, uh, you know, pretty sparse West Texas or whatever. Then you sort of have an idea of the flavor uh, of the place. Like, imagine if he was just Houston, like so many other cities where they're dominated by one metropole and the rest of it is just small towns dotting the, uh, dotting the horizon. Except for, like, you know... Even more so, because the U.S., even a pretty small town, like the U.S. is getting more and more concentrated even into uh, local population centers. You don't really have uh, proportionally as many people living in like cities of 100 people. Well, some of these numbers may be outdated, given my source material being a fairly old book on F, uh, well, not specifically Afghanistan, but just uh, some concepts uh, containing countries like that. And it says here that um, the country only has about a 20% urbanization rate. And Kabul being really their only large major city, um, that's pretty much it. And everybody else, as uh, I guess we've been intimating, doesn't even really feel connected necessarily to this uh, this place that the United Nations recognizes as an integrated unit it really is spread out uh a la rambo three there's a bunch of tribesmen living in the mountains i'd never been there obviously but uh i get the impression that things haven't really changed much since that movie came out uh and you know it's it's also amazing how a country like this can even retain it's, it's character as long as it has. Uh, for centuries, it's really been a focal point for foreign entities vying for geographic slash strategic position. I never really understood why. I, I, obviously, I understand the centrality of the, uh, the country as kind of like a pivot point between uh, the East and the West, sitting sort of in the middle of Asia um, the world island. Yeah. You've got Q, to control Brzezinski. that world island, dude. Um, but <laughs> other than the fact that it, it is central and that it doesn't have a very strong central government, which is maybe what is sort of enticing about it in that these empires feel like they, they can kind of prop it up or infiltrate it or control it because of that. 
never really understood why it was so attractive. I mean, if you watch Joe Rogan circa 2012 or something, you know, he'll go on about how the rare earth minerals are the secret reason why we're over there. And, and I never really bought that. And uh, yeah, every, everybody I saw that, like, uh, that Moore documentary, but like, dude, you, you had thought that the time to open up a giant rare earth mine or like a <laughs> pipeline would have been when you controlled the country. Right. Right. Like when you talk about rare earth mining, it's not like you strike a vein of like fucking MacBook batteries and then you just <laughs> stick them in a cargo ship and like, oh, it goes to the plants uh, where they assemble them. It's like you have dirt and that dirt has slightly more of a concentration than you would expect of this shit. And so it goes through a refiner, et cetera, et cetera. And after a long process, you've got like your MacBook battery. But it, the actual mine is like it's one step up from a dude with a shovel. And you can you can do that. Like you can open up like my rare earth mine, my my like ten trillion dollars or whatever in minerals, and you can ship that ore to like a safe location and refine it. It's just not economically productive to do that because there's other sources. And thinking about like the nominal value of a super low density resource, like you know, slightly spicy dirt essentially, is it it's not a good way to calculate like, okay, if I had like this volume of shit in the ground in my hand, it would be worth this much, but I actually have to spend 90% of that to get it out of the ground, even without anybody shooting at me. Yeah. We saw this over and over where, you know, the, the new guy comes into town says, Oh, well, look, there's so many great opportunities for uh, industry here. Why aren't we doing it? Like, well, uh, that's a great question actually. <laughs> You should answer that before you decide you're going to implement some uh, industrial growth policies here. Um, the reason there is no industrial growth is there's no political stability. And it, there's unlikely to be political stability without a massively powerful institution that's able to traverse this sort of terrain. That you're having. If, you, if you just pull up Afghanistan and Google Maps and go to satellite view, and then just zoom out where you have like Europe and Turkey in the far left corner and India in the bottom right corner. It's like a washing machine of terrain in between those two green continents. And it makes it extremely difficult to administer anything with any sort of uh, continuity or certainty. Right. And it's like we were saying earlier, the uh, cobble says, well, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Now women get to vote. Um, you know, we're okay with butt sex or whatever the new U.S. foreign policy objectives are. Nobody outside of there even really hears it. If they do, it's like a rumor and a joke and a punchline, you know. Who's going to enforce that? And then you, you give a bunch of guys and cobble guns and trucks and you say, hey, this is the new law. Get out there in the countryside and make sure people are following it. And then you just run into fertilizer bombs for a couple hours before you turn around and come back. And you're like, yeah, it wasn't really working out. Or, yeah, we talked to them. They said they're cool with it. You know, whatever they have to say to stay out of these conflicts. And when the U.S. got there and to an extent when Russia was there, you could just fly around. Right. You could just skip from one landing pad to another landing pad and you can do your brief operations, get back in your helicopter and leave. 
Um, but there's no lasting stability there, right? You can, you know, arrest or detain key players in the, air quotes, resistance and try to disrupt that, but it never lasts very long. You know, these outlying villages have a way of, uh, it. the way I see it, the reason Afghanistan still exists as a place with an identity or identities is because it's almost like the perfect genetic material survival container right like you can you always have some isolated in different parts of the country you can never contain it all in one area and actually do any real damage to it you know and they kind of sustain themselves with very simple lifestyles you know <laughs> the way they manage their water and their food and their livestock you know you'll you'll never feel rich there but it's it's like the whole thing just seems to breathe life you know it's like how do how do these people persist and you can zoom in on some of these big valleys and draws in between the mountains and see where they've been at this for a very, very, very long time. Like you can see the old crumbled village and then you can see where they built successive villages higher and higher or further and further down the stream of melted ice or snow, excuse me. It's just been going on a very long time and it would take an enormous amount of effort and resources to disrupt it in any significant way. So Unlike places that are kind of located differently on the old trading routes, right, like Iran or Turkey, you can kind of penetrate into Iran very deeply using the resources that you accumulate in Turkey. And you can do the same from India going to the West. But once you get in Afghanistan, trying to keep any kind of chain of logistics connected becomes more and more difficult. And you're like, you're paying the tax, you know, the security tax, and you're paying the political tax, and to every single disparate group and tribe and uh, bandit, ro roaming bandit guys that hang out on the roads of what, what they call roads there, you know, and it just costs you more and more and more. It's like you're just spilling it's, gold out behind your train, you know? It's basically, it's Switzerland. Defensibility is a natural resource. First, it's like a river valley, but if you conquer one end of the Nile, you're going to conquer the other end of the Nile. Uh, if, the nice thing about, like, the fractal nature of Afghanistan is that every piece, uh, as we uh, well discovered, you end up bleeding for. Yep. According to military.com, uh, the bill for the Afghanistan war uh, is $2.26 trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, <laughs> NBC News reports that their total... That's just with the checks that they wrote on the books, dude. Yeah. The, the total rare earth mineral estimate, according to NBC News, was almost one trillion. Not quite one, but under a trillion. So if we literally scooped a giant shovel and dug up the entire country, we wouldn't get our money back. It just puts a lot of things in perspective. Goat tacos are pretty good, though. Yeah. I mean, you figure like four bucks for like a goat taco, however many goats are in Afghanistan. It's like pretty soon it pays for itself. Right. <laughs> yeah. You can put a lot of goats in there and they have. Yeah, they're really they could probably double their GDP if they just had like international dog fighting because they breed these huge, huge mountain dogs and they train them and they fight. Well, up north they do um, in, the, in the mountains, obviously, but. Uh, wow, they're they're incredible, and they treat them like family members. You know, of course, it's pretty terrifying wandering through a village at night and having one of these things come at you, dragging like three full tires behind it. But uh, yeah, that's you know, 
when it when it comes to like what can you do in Afghanistan, really the only industries I could see would be like specializing in, in livestock type stuff, horses or, or uh, guided hunting trips and ski resorts, like things like that, where you can just cut a little section out of it and then concentrate all your resources in just that small area. And then let the rest of the country just do its thing instead of sort of abiding by the national borders that everybody attributes to Afghanistan. Just look at the borders, the actual political borders of the area that you're in, which is based on ethnic groups and tribal loyalties. So, yeah, that's really the only way to do it, which is why the U.S. can never seem to be cost effective or get any sort of result, uh, any sort of positive result in any of these forays that we've had in the Middle East because we refuse to embrace the reality that, you know, most human beings don't think like neoliberals and they think it's completely insane. So Speaking of neoliberals, um, our friend uh, Lito, um, who's been on our show um, before, he sent us uh, an article from the Wall Street Journal talking about the United States uh, leaving Afghanistan uh, behind a population of quote-unquote professionals uh, that will be missing the United States and fear that within six months the Taliban may take over once the U.S. leaves. Uh, here's a couple of, well, here's a quote. Um, there are no other female music teachers here, and if I leave, nobody else will fill the gap, said Miss Ms. Zamir, who teaches college-age women in Kabul. Uh, music is my life. She said she rejected several marriage proposals from suitors who wanted her to stop performing in public. She's 26 years old. Uh, and the article goes on like this. There's like lots of these uh, young women. There was like an actress, a fashion designer, um, just right out of National Geographic, uh, literally that cover photo, I think, from 30 years right. ago of that woman. Uh, they just really, really, really want these Afghanis to be uh, sex in the city gals without any children i guess um but they want all their young men to come here which uh still boggles my mind if i'm not thinking too cynically but that's on the face of it 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 just doesn't add up right so you're not thinking cynically enough (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's the um you know, it, I get asked this question all the time. What was the real what was the real point? What was the real purpose? What were they really trying to accomplish with this uh, Afghanistan and opium man? Like, yeah, it, you know, it's like it's the rare earth minerals. You're going to control stuff. the four billion dollars of he heroin. Ever rolled yeah. up some <laughs> heroin fucking with threat. fucking lithium man. It's right. like next level. That's what makes the uh, the opium poppy so good is the rare earth minerals that it grows in. But uh, <laughs> the terroir, it's like you know the Bordeaux. If it if it doesn't come from France, yeah. it's just you know your your sparkling Gatorade. I think they call that Tiberium. I played that on Command and Conquer. It glows. <laughs> it's green. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I you know this Lobo Homo neoliberal layer touches everything you know that's the because the u.s and its key influential elites in this country they um subscribe to these beliefs and they apply them to everything except themselves of course um 
And that's why it seems like, okay, what was the goal to go to Afghanistan and legalize gay marriage? I don't think so necessarily. I, I think you had a lot of momentum from, um, you know, the defense industry, obviously. Uh, very excited about this quagmire. Uh, military leaders, of course, are related to that, but they have their own unique incentives to, to continuously occupy places and make a bigger deal out of it than it should be. I think politically it's, it went really well for Democrats and Republicans, big air quotes there, uh, both. I think they both benefited from it great from a electoral politics standpoint. And I think that ultimately our foreign policy direction is Zionist. So having a large occupying army east of Iran was not necessarily a, a bad uh, trial run, you know. What the, the indigenous resistance to the U.S. was never going to be uh, that big of a risk, not with all of our capabilities or lift capabilities and airstrike capabilities. Um, so we had support from Europe and Turkey, too, even though they kind of begrudgingly gave it. They did give it. So it all kind of works in tandem. And now it culminates in 20 years later. You know, what's the big loss for the people that worked with the U.S.? Right. It's not the guys who were delivering uh, packages for us in the dead of night through like very hostile controlled mountain valleys. It's not like the guys that were giving us information about bomb makers and terrorism. And it wasn't the diplomats and all the interpreters and uh, translators that worked for us in various offices throughout the country. No, no. The people we need to worry about is this new professional class of women's music teachers, right? That, so that's your layer of Globo Homo right there. It just gets slapped on everything. And if you probably looked at the U.S. government and Department of Defense policy, I guarantee you a lot of those people that I just mentioned, they did get asylum or they got involved in some sort of program to give them at least a modicum of protection. I guarantee that happened. But what everybody else gets to see, the, the layer that's most visible through the media, the Wall Street Journal or whatever, is the the global homo gayplex narratives, right? And that's what it's really become, you know? And you can't conquer that idea, so therefore you can't conquer Afghanistan either, you know? That's just how it works. Well, I want to talk about some of these people because, you know, the, the whole, like, there's a selection effect going on where obviously there's a narrative, the Washington Post wants to write a story about, like, my poor somebody abandoned by... Uh, getting rid of this forever war. They're going to choose the person who speaks uh, comprehensible English, which is somebody who's bought into that whole system, which ends up being like your you know, lesbian dog walkers of Kabul or whatever. <laughs> so what is interesting to me is like the, the factions that actively... Uh, sort of supported uh, the U.S. regime there. And I'm just going to speak about it in the past tense because that's <laughs> there's an expiration date on this whole endeavor. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, when I hear that, like, person XYZ wanted it to become, like, a typist for the U.S. embassy or a translator for uh, some uh, U.S. military unit. It's like, thank you for your service, bro, but uh, you, you're a traitor. Uh, you, like, and the U.S. has a horrible record of 
assisting the people that have assisted the U.S., both domestically and uh, in foreign contexts. There's every expectation that this is going to end with you being slowly tortured to death uh, or quickly exploded. Uh, you know, take your pick. And obviously there's like an ethnic dimension here where uh, I understand like in uh, Kabul itself, the uh, Hazari, if I'm pronouncing or even saying that correct, uh, are particularly predominant in that region and have no particular love for the Taliban. But what incents somebody to actually assist the U.S.? when like there's every expectation of it ending horribly for them like are they deluded is it the only option that's available for them they need the money like what's going on here well i think um what what you'll find is most of the people that help the u.s are physically from based out of places that are not really in conflict with the u.s right so the big cities in afghanistan never really went off so to speak like they did in iraq um they were just kind of always against the people <laughs> you know not 90 percent of the people in the country lived out in the middle of nowhere around the cities and it was just like well they've walled themselves into a city to protect themselves from us so just that's fine with us and that's fine with them and when the u.s goes in and occupies a city it's a very brief uh, kind of transition of priorities and you know, those are the places with uh, TV and Internet and, uh, you know, people with more education. So that's where you find most of your translators and interpreters. So those people don't when they see themselves getting in a helicopter with U.S. troops and flying, you know, 150, 170 miles away to a place in the mountains where they think these people just like sleep with goats. You know, they don't to them. It's just there's no connection there. Right. They don't they don't see how this could really end badly unless one of these guys gets lucky with the ak or something uh, which is not likely but you know there's no connection to it now in iraq that was a completely different completely different everybody kind of knew the risks everything was very close quarters you know socially politically and then in the actual physical violence too but um afghanistan is just not that way man it's like um if you're from the East Coast, say you're from a small town in like Maryland or something, right? And uh, somebody tells you that there's like a firefight going on between two towns in, in Colorado Rockies. You know, that has about as much relevance to you as uh, someone in Kabul hearing about a guy making uh, fertilizer bombs in, say, uh, uh, Badakhshan, right? Which is in the far northeast of the country. It, it just doesn't connect, right? Um, and I, I don't want to say that these city dwellers are like liberals right like uh i mean they are liberal more liberal but uh there there's kind of this like meme and it's easy to fall into the trap because by comparison when you talk to a farmer or like a goat herder or something in the countryside and then you go into the city and you meet people and they seem to have a little bit more awareness of the bigger world you think like wow these people are really liberal right uh but they're really not you know it, relative to the u.s it would be like um sort of the same social and political sensibilities as a American from the late 1600s, early 1700s, right? That's, that's their degree of liberalization. So while the media may be running stories about female music teachers, most of the people in that her, her neighborhood most likely probably don't like that at all, and they think it's subversive. 
so there's just layers of this different cultural norms throughout the country, you know, in the cities and then the smaller towns outside of the cities and then the rural populations and then it's tribal on top of that, ethnic and then tribal on top of that. So and it, one of the interesting things about Afghanistan is, you know, the ethnic divisions are so obvious. It's kind of hard to tell the difference between a Kurd and just an Iraqi Arab or to tell the difference between two Iraqis, Arabs of even two different Sunni tribes. Um, it's not hard at all to tell that certain groups of people in Afghanistan are completely different genetically. You know, some of them just look Asian, right? The ones that live up north in, in Badakhshan, we just talked about in some other places like Kunduz, they have like the slanty eye thing and they're short. You know, it's not hard to figure this out. So the divisions are really strong. You know, it's, it's like seeing a black guy and a white guy. You, you don't have any, there's no question about the different genetic background. It's not like, oh, well, maybe he's just a really dark skinned white guy I'm like nah it doesn't really fly so it's easier to keep things segmented and separated because of that and I think that's why you see that oh, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier where you have sort of this like genetic material preservation box that is the country of afghanistan <laughs> you know um yeah look at you know just go to a map uh google earth or something like that put it on satellite and then zoom into afghanistan and just slowly mouse roll backwards the physical terrain creates these containers in the country that are extremely difficult to get in and out of usually there's one road one main road and other than that you're just walking up and down hills for days and days and days and people just aren't going to do that a lot so um well i'm gonna really put my maybe not neoliberal just like classical liberal hat on and and ask the question what makes Switzerland different than Afghanistan? Because geographically, they share a lot in common. I mean, they're both mountainous. They're both kind of centrally located, you know, good for being the middleman for trade routes. I think they might have done that during, you know, the, the Silk Road days uh, centuries ago. But why has Switzerland developed such in such a different way with you know, precision machinery, watches, uh, a very productive agricultural sector, even given their poor land um they're they're very wealthy and prosperous nation and afghanistan is um extremely poor and disunited as well i mean switzerland is actually kind of an interesting case study in how you manage a country that size with th at least three distinct language groups if not four if you're counting uh i think it's pronounced romanche it's uh it's like a very ancient language um, but they, they officially recognize uh, all those groups and they have these very uh, well-regarded Canton democratic uh, voting mechanisms, if we still believe in that stuff, uh, that seem to work relatively well. So just looking at it from that lens, what makes Afghanistan so different? Judeo-Christian values. <laughs> Must be. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's got to be it, man. Um I, you know, I think it obvious one is just the genetic material that's left over in Afghanistan. You know, I, I think that's one of the keys here. We're talking about Europeans versus what's left to sort of the migration of really ancient Europeans out of that area. You know, so if you're looking at the map, the Caspian Sea is just northwest of Afghanistan and India is just southeast. So that migration happened thousands of years ago people leaving that sort of northern india 
all the way through Turkey into Africa and then Southern Europe. So what's I think what's left over there is kind of like um, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. It's kind of like the Appalachian people in the U.S. The people that settled there originally didn't stay there. They're from the same groups, but they moved on and they settled the lowlands in different areas of the country. The people that stayed there have not been economically successful. I would argue they haven't been very socially successful either, as much as I can respect their unique, you know, nature and culture. But um, I think you're looking at a similar situation for places like Afghanistan, where it's sort of a stagnant population. The trade routes have largely disappeared, which was a big injection of, you know, bandit money and <laughs> trade ec- economy. But, you know, aside from that, too, you just zoom out and look at the map. Everything around Switzerland is green and everything around Afghanistan is brown. It, there's just a lack of really simple agricultural capability. There's a lack of d- diffused river systems that can transport water reliably from one place to another. They, they depend on a lot of snow melt and things of that nature. They manage their water very, very locally, right? So there's not like a national uh, ability to move things, either things on the water or move water to different agricultural areas, which is something that Europe had a big advantage with, too. So I think when you add all that stuff together, it's like it, my question would be, why would anyone think Switzerland would turn out like Afghanistan? You know, you have a higher quality genetic stock moves into the area. You have, I would say, are you a better natural infrastructure and natural resources and you're surrounded by italy and the mediterranean sea to the south which is a very short jaunt for for the people in switzerland and northern europe to the north so it's kind of like yeah you have tajikistan to the in turkmenistan to the north of afghanistan and <laughs> pakistan to the south so it's pretty tough uh road to hoe there by the way, if we have any Swiss listeners, uh, we, w- we would love to talk to you about your country. Uh, I've looked into kind of the uh, how Switzerland works and how it got to be Switzerland. And a lot of it is really uh, weirdly colored by EU propaganda, at least uh, in the, uh, the English language. So I've had sort of a difficult time of it. But... We'd love to talk with you uh, either privately or publicly about Switzerland if you happen to be around. So, I mean, one of the things uh, that's been intriguing about kind of the, you know, we're not your dad's Taliban. uh, I've gotten the impression via their propaganda, they seem to be going and it's difficult when you're absorbing the propaganda like third hand um in translation etc etc but it seems like there's actually a lot more emphasis in the very recent like last couple years taliban propaganda about uh sort of a a rainbow coalition (laughs) like they they actually appear to be showcasing uh the local commanders that uh come from just the uh, the non-pashtun uh populations where previously like you know in 2001 or so they were effectively like a pashtun parochialist uh association and at least the guys that are running their like english language uh public statements uh 
they they seem to be sort of attempting it to strike a more uh, moderate tone in terms of like, oh, yes, of course, you'll still have your cell phones. That's not going away. Everything must be done in according to Islamic values, but nothing will change. It'll just be different uh, sort of uh, intentionally ambiguous messaging. So what's, uh, I guess, everyone's impression of the extent to which the Taliban has shifted priorities or quote-unquote moderated or changed their composition? Well, I think it's important to remember that um, prior to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the Taliban was the legitimate ruling government of the country. And uh, for the shock value, people used to show these before and after pictures and they would say, Oh, this was Afghanistan in the 70s. Look, like women were wearing bikinis in the streets. And uh, look today, uh, look how women dress. But, um, you know, however you you want to feel about that, right? But, uh, you know, there's always been a spectrum of uh, tolerances, even under the official Taliban rule. So it's not as though when the Taliban took over, everybody was wearing, all the women were wearing the... uh, full veils and the big dresses down to their toes. Most of that stuff was driven locally. And even as late as a few years ago, you go out to some of these outlying areas and all the women are dressed that way. There's no Taliban government there. You know, that's just how they operate, you know, their day-to-day stuff. Uh, really interesting cultural stuff goes on out there. Um, I wish we had time to get into some of the cool stuff that was going on, but you know, uh, the Taliban was always kind of a Pashtun uh, ethnic deal, but it's not also not true that they never incorporated or worked with other groups as well, especially when there's outside uh, pressures like the U.S. and other governments that were involved there, Iran. Um, they will absolutely go start building alliances and uh, find networks of trustworthy people and you know, the different groups will provide fighters for one another from their lower classes and they'll provide traders and, uh, you know, um, uh, finance guys for their upper level stuff and uh, from the upper classes and the more educated groups of people. And uh, after 20 years of doing that under U.S. occupation, you can bet there has been a tremendous amount of uh, widespread political unity created uh, on a, at a certain level, right? enough that you can get people from different tribes and groups out there in front of the TV saying, yeah, we're all in this together. Cause at this point, what's there to lose, right? If they screw this up after the U S pulls out and it completely devolves and they can't get any sort of coalition together, man, you're really damaging the brand then. So they really need to come out strong right now. (laughs) If the Taliban wants to be successful in this thing um, and not just become a meme name, you know, which they have been for the last 15 or 20 years, but, um, you know, I would say that there's a little bit of a crossover with the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, at first, you know, it was all based on this kind of obscure sect of Shia-ish rel- religious stuff and a very small, uh, in, in the Islamic world, a very small group of people, very large for Yemen in the northern part of the country, right? So these rebels, they lived in the north part of Yemen, and to their north is Saudi Arabia and the mountain ranges in between the two of them. And the government's been basically ruled by Sunni uh, uh, U.S. and Saudi puppets for a very long time. And at first, it was kind of just like Houthis working together and creating this resistance. Um, But, you know, they did such a good job and so successful with their messaging and their political actions 
they started pulling in Sunnis like crazy. Sunnis from like really hardcore uh, tribal areas too, because they started seeing like, we actually have something in common with these people and we want to stop the corruption as much as possible. So we're going to back this horse. So it wasn't even a couple of years into that, that they started building coalitions. So that same thing happens all over Afghanistan as well. It happens all over everywhere, honestly. So it's kind of hard to put it all in a big box and say, you know, this is the Taliban rebranding. The Taliban survived because it it found um, alliances of political convenience when it needed to. And more importantly, as, as important, I should say, they could generate the bodies to do political violence when they needed to. So you pair those two things together, and you have a pretty hard-to-kill mechanism. So I was kind of rambling, but... <laughs> no, that's interesting. Uh, I think the point about like being able to assemble warm bodies is very important in a political context. Uh, you'll see sort of with countries that manage insurgencies from the outside like Iran and Russia have historically the ones that are very good at it are very careful about uh, deciding who they're going to assist and under what circumstances and then under those conditions actually being able to commit forces that make the whole endeavor worthwhile so yeah. I mean, the the Iranians, uh, particularly under Soleimani, were uh, sort of notorious or famous, I guess, uh, in Syria for sidling up to particular groups and being like, we would love to give you equipment and resources. We have a bunch of stuff. However, you absolutely have to show that you are worth a goddamn and not pull the American maneuver of throwing money at every quote unquote moderate rebel group. Uh, within arm's reach, take this town, and uh, and then we'll talk equipment. And as a result, like you know, people actually took casualties. Uh, there were severe casualties in some of these endeavors that appeared to be signaling efforts uh, in order to garner foreign support. And in like a Taliban context, that's why the question of sort of the they appear to have been operating very strategically, but in a very decentralized way. Like, it's questionable to me how many forces are actually at the disposal of any particular operation. And obviously, like, it varies by multiple orders of magnitude uh, just by nature of the, the place and the physical geography. But there... Um, I don't know. That, that's sort of my rambling, <laughs> uh, rambling, rambling response to your uh, your your answer. Uh, in turn, uh, it's an interesting problem of how you actually deploy forces so that they are uh, effective and not wasted. Like in one way, it's it's sort of like the essence of warfare, but it's actually not something that the United States appears to pay any attention to at all. Yeah, it's, um, man, that you opened up a lot of really interesting stuff there that's been talked about a lot over the years, kind of behind the scenes. No country has written more on the art of uh, insurgency and how to create them and utilize them than the U.S. government, U.S. military. Nobody, but nobody has done it worse 
and it, it's when you're in a position where you're the most powerful force economic and militarily in the world it's almost like it's an afterthought how surgically you can select an effective insurgent group to achieve specific political objectives because what's the point when you're just going to invade iraq and invade afghanistan and then it's like okay well let's go find this little tribe with a grievance over here and we'll vet them out and see what you know they're going to be capable of and what it's going to take to it's like they always talk about it as though that's on the table but it's like by the time you got done doing all of that some new government's in and they're just going to invade who cares or they're going to just bomb and fly away and who cares iran doesn't have that option iran has been fighting a sort of uh economic economically uh, constrained uh warfare or strategy i should say foreign policy strategy for a very very long time since even before 79 and all that stuff so they're very good at it and they they expend their resources uh freely so they have a a great dissemination of uh responsibility and delegation of authority but they they haven't targeted it in very specific ways and like you said hey we found a group make them prove it you know make them prove that they're going to earn it make them give something up first you know geez the problem with the u.s is that uh nobody will take your money <laughs> you know we're like we got all this stuff who wants it and people are like i ain't getting involved with that you know uh no thanks you know and it's kind of like i don't remember the guy who said it but i wouldn't belong to a, a club who would have me as a member and that's kind of like what these people are saying is like i'm not like even Bob offering Hope you anything or somebody and, yeah it was so it was one of those Groucho. Like, uh, yeah, yeah maybe so, yeah. <laughs> i know it was a black and white era thing but uh you know, it's kind of like that. Even uh, low IQ people from the Middle East can figure out, like, something's not right here. They're, they don't even want proof that I can do any of the things that I'm claiming, and, and they're going to pay me for it. So it's like, you know, <laughs> it, why would the U.S. need to get good at it? But we, we can explain why Iran would need to get good at it, right? And one of their key things is that they want to see people win without their help first. And once they see that, head of steam and momentum start getting built, then that's when they get serious about it. And you can see it with the Houthis, you know, the U.S. early on, oh, Iran is behind this, Iran is behind this. Uh, not really, not early on. It was just kind of a thing that got built locally. And, of course, they did have a lot of moral support and very some physical support. But once it really got going and once they proved they were going to be very difficult to get, uh, you know, under control that's when the real support started coming in. We're talking three or four years later. And now it's just a constant stream of support. So, um, you know, that's the way you're supposed to be doing it. <laughs> what, so, you... like, the U.S. goes into uh, Vietnam. This is a funny, just real quick. They go into Vietnam, and uh, they partner up with these, like, mountain yard, like, mountain people in one of these Asian countries related to Vietnam. Maybe it was Vietnam or Cambodia or something, right? The, the Hmong? Like, oh, these people were really... Uh, the mountain yards... Uh, yeah, and the Hmong, yeah, so that's, I think they're maybe the same thing, but, you know, in Special Forces lore, it's, you know, it's the mountain yards. They were willing to work with us to kill the communists. And then, uh, of course, they got, like, completely obliterated. Uh, they never got enough support to do anything, and the U.S. just, like, gave them all asylum. So now they have, like, huge populations of them in, like, the upper Midwest. Like, that's where yeah, it started. Yeah, that's the Hmong. <laughs> Well, that was like, Gran Torino. Did you, very, yeah, very not brave. Not only did you lose, not super you confident. lost twice. So you took your losers that you just gave resources to, and you brought them to the U.S., and you brag about it. 
Like, what? what is going on here? Does Iran do this? Like, hell no, man. Lebanese Hezbollah is not welcome. <laughs> right? So, um, I, I sat at a dinner once with uh, a Hmong girl, and she, uh, she, she wouldn't stop talking about uh, racism. Uh, they they got to her early, I guess, uh, in her oh, education. Yeah. Um, while you guys were chatting, gone. by the way, I was I was looking for the uh, official Taliban Instagram, and I, I couldn't find it. There is uh, there is some <laughs> Taliban related uh, social medias, but they're pretty much all like rappers or just like discontinued or the search engine like like last hit was 2011. But I think I found like the only at least in the time that we've had the, the only English language, uh, Taliban website, it's called, uh, all Amara English.net. And it's put out by a group calling themselves the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the voice of jihad. Um, and I don't know what exact like, uh, alphabet script they use. I mean, it, it sort of looks like Arabic obviously, but, uh, it's kind of fancy sort of like what you see in Persia, uh, or Iran. I don't know what this script is coming from, but they have language options at the top other than the English, obviously, as Pashto, Dari, slash Persian, Arabic, and Urdu. So it just shows you right there how complex this country is. And this is like one of the factions that is not even in power. But it's it's really interesting to read uh, the articles they have listed here. I didn't click on them, but I'm just looking at the headlines. Uh, so like the, the top one, uh, unilateral decisions will harm the peace process. And there's a picture of like this mean U S looking soldier, uh, Bulldog district center falls to Mujahideen. So they still use that term, uh, fabrications and propaganda of the Kabul regime. So they obviously don't like Kabul's government statement of Islamic Emirate concerning extension of occupation by Turkish forces in Afghanistan. Enemy bombardment, martyr four children, hurt two others in Delaram. Uh, clarification regarding recent enemy fabrications and propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. So it goes on like this, but um, clearly a government or a group in exile that is waiting for the opportunity to reclaim its place. They have uh, another section here, photo report. Tens of Mushahideen graduate from Abdullah bin Mubarak military camp and they got a bunch of like trucks lined up like their technicals whatever they call those things I guess they use yeah, those in some Afghanistan. of those some of those videos uh, there are a few Twitter accounts that sort of do very dispassionate uh, analysis of uh, their you know equipment and loadout and tactics and etc uh, it, it's it's super weird and I don't even know what to think of it if you're familiar with uh uh, Lucas Botkin, uh, like T-Rex arms. And there's like mixed opinions, but if you look at like, uh, Taliban or ISIS, uh, like propaganda training videos, I'm not saying that like one is learning from the other. I think they're, they're all sort of deriving from some sort of an er Instagram, uh, aesthetic, but it's completely bizarre to me that the way that, uh, everyone is sort of mimicking the same like flashy Instagram uh, style on their, their shooting videos. This is completely aside from anything, but uh, I don't know. You, you brought up their, their official media uh, page. So I thought I'd chime in. Well, yeah, I don't know what language they speak. I mean, it's, it's so complicated, this country. 
I, yeah. I and I don't speak these languages, so I, I can't exactly search for it. But they somebody put up this. I don't know if it's a honeypot. If like the CIA built this thing, I mean, it's it just probably I, who knows? is, dude. It probably, <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> and that's that's Join one now, of the. Click it's the just so indicative of, uh, you know, we talked about earlier. What is the Taliban, right? Everybody is the Taliban. Nobody is the Taliban. Uh, I'll I'll relay. A Taliban is an idea. Man. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. Um, it's just an idea, bro. But um, you know, we're out in this very remote area of the country, and uh, we got a call from some people and some local folks that we knew that were kind of cool with us, you know, in the sense that if we minded our business, they would mind theirs, and that was kind of our deal, right? And we're like, but if you need anything, just let us know. We're just trying to get out of here, just like you're trying to get on with your life. So. They called us and they said, we got these guys in black pajamas and they're stealing livestock from us. And they're telling us that it's part of a tax for the local Taliban fighters and we have to do it or the Taliban will commander will come down and talk to them. Which was confusing to us because as far as we knew, there was no Taliban within range of this area at all. None. So we drive down there and there's like 12 guys riding around on little motorcycle things like these cheap Chinese like road bikes with uh, like dynamos on them. And uh, they're wearing like black pajamas and a couple of them have AKs. So, uh, you know, they shot at us for a little bit and then they realized like, Oh, we're like seven kilometers away. There's no way <laughs> we're going to hit anybody. So uh, we just kept calling people until we got a hold of someone that was from that village. And we were like, Hey, tell these clowns to put their guns down and just come over here. Uh, so that we don't have to escalate this to retarded levels. So uh, their their little leader comes out there, you know, he has no shoes on. Uh, his little black pajamas are like clearly homemade deals. And uh, we're like, dude, what are you doing, man? And basically, this is the grift, right? We just tell people we're part of the Taliban because uh, we like to hang out on the north side of the town here where the caves are at. And we just drink all day. We don't work. And we just eat the lambs and goats or whatever that people give us. We're like, okay. That's pretty much what's going on in this whole area right now, right? Like, yep, that's pretty much it. Like, so be claiming that you're Taliban and wearing the black pajamas, uh, it's like a effective tool at many different levels of society, right? But it's just as easy to take them off, put on a normal thing and drive into a city. And nobody would have any clues. So, I mean, obviously that's not profound. That goes on everywhere that you have these kind of uh, violent groups around. But, you know... The Taliban's real talent was um, dissolving when it wasn't needed and coming back when it was. It's almost like, a, I would actually say, a U.S., a nonviolent U.S. sort of analogy, analogy for this would be like a Tea Party type people or like constitutionalists, man. And these kind of like, oh, there's a big issue. We're all going to get spun up and uh, go protest downtown or you know, share big chain emails with each other on Facebook or something. Uh, th these groups pop up the same way, and they call themselves, like, similar names every time. You know, it's always some kind of 1776 uh, freedom, liberty, uh, constitution type thing. Well, the t Taliban kind of does the same stuff, you know. So I guarantee you on the inaugural day of official Taliban government in a year or whatever, uh, half those people aren't have, have never even going to see another guy have never seen before another guy that was air quotes officially in the Taliban. You know, they'll just be standing in there basically saying like, oh yeah, we're all in this thing now, right? <laughs> you know, so 
uh, that's kind of how I see it. You know, I think maybe a Intel analyst or somebody might see it differently because they have a way of taking all these jigsaw puzzles and like making a coherent picture out of it, even when they don't exist. Um, but on the ground level and having traveled quite a bit across massive parts of that country for a long time, I, I don't see it. It's not a real thing, right? Like you, you have some people from Pakistan that are literally just training camps to come up and t attack U.S. troops and people that are loyal to the U.S., but there's no real, air quotes, Taliban ideology involved with any of that. You know, it's just political violence paid for by foreign intelligence services and other, you know, interest groups. But that's kind of a rambling uh, bit there, but hopefully that gives a little bit of context or flavor to these Taliban uh, brand. Did you see any uh, any Chinese presence in Afghanistan or they're like smart enough to realize it's not worth any of their energy? No, they're there. They share about 92 miles of border with China. So if you get on Google Maps and you go to the far northeast province, which is Badakhshan, uh, which is a really awesome, just from a pure <laughs> uh, environmental perspective, amazing place. Um, I think that's where the border's at. So it's like the very northeast kind of sticks out like a little appendix there. But uh, yeah, they, they have uh, some infrastructure projects going on there, but they mostly just pay uh, locals to go in and do it because they don't want to get involved in this stuff, man. They do, they do some mining, they do some, uh, stuff like stone, like marble. Um, and then they've done like telecom. And of course they have like low level economic, uh, involvement there too, where they just send like cheap stuff across that border constantly. Um, cell phones and electronics and things like that, but even like rugs and stuff that they make in these like giant sweatshop factories blankets pretty much any kind of like furniture that you buy is going to be made there and just kind of shipped through that area um these big bongo trucks so yeah it's it's very interesting how uh, much more effective and pragmatic chinese involvement is uh for all their faults that they have they kind of just accept things on a more realistic level like the way they are and <laughs> just go from there you know Yeah, they're, they're they're preeminently pragmatic people. Uh, I I don't know if there's any other people like them to the degree that which they'll they'll basically they'll say what they need to in order to get into the situation they want to be in, but they'll do what they have to uh, in order to make the most out of it. And they they're they're not beholden uh, very much to ideology, ironically, given their country is officially a very ideological place it in in, in practice you know it, it's sort of just lip service that i think a lot of people there will pay in order to uh, go along and get along but it's uh, it's inbred in their culture to behave that way i've known i've known tons of chinese people and they, they it boggles their mind honestly when they look at how americans are so uh obsessed with politics and I think they have a very relatively clear-eyed view of things in in many ways towards America and that they a lot of them by the way have studied in America and, and then maybe have gone back to China so they they have a very good perspective on the how the world works uh, also but in in America's case in particular what they'll say is like why do you care so much about what your government does 
you don't have any control over it. You know, and they it's sort of like more explicit in China, so that maybe that's why they automatically so assume that. But they think Americans are unbelievably naive to think that what our stupid little opinion is matters to the ruling class in the United States. And it doesn't, and they're right. Uh, I think the difference, the major difference is that the American system lulls people into thinking that the the public has a say as kind of a, a way of subjugating them, frankly. Uh, by mm -hmm. fooling them into thinking that they have more power than they do. Uh, and then maybe if they realized they didn't have that power, they'd be more prone to revolting. But uh, the Chinese approach is just kind of a more open, firm hand. You don't have a say. Uh, so go on with your life and focus on building a future for your family. And I think that's how they, they, they work. And in many ways, it works better. Um, of course, you know, the conversations that we have over here, as academic as they may be, are are more difficult and less less possible there. Um, so I don't know. I mean, pick your yeah, poison. You ju but. Juxtapose the the idea of Chinese society that you described, and I think even if you don't know a lot about the Chinese, after you meet a few of them, you start realizing how distinct they they are as thinkers and how they conceptualize the world. You you start to understand that very quickly, even ones that are born in the U.S. You know, I've worked with some that were born in China and Taiwan and some that were born in the U.S. And it's like an almost indistinguishable worldview. Like the U.S. did not break them of that, just living here, being born here. Yeah, right? I, I can't quite put my finger on it. But I, if you ever, um, ever look at like Chinese philosophy, for example, a lot of it is sort of trying to balance extremes. I've described this uh, to people in, in on this show before in similar terms. And I don't really know if I'm getting anywhere with this, but my impression is that the, the sort of, uh, the, the Tao, the way the, the yin and the yang is kind of how their, their brain works. And they, they seem to be comfortable with ambiguity more so than maybe the Westerner is. And so they're, they're fine with, of course, the politician is corrupt. Of course, he's going to be a hypocrite. What do you expect? And they, they kind of just, are willing to navigate through this kind of muddy culture and complicated history of their society more so than <laughs> almost the tempestuous, uh, petulant behavior of, of Westerners, uh, in their eyes at least, where, it, again, it's just this, like, why are you people so naive? Like, just get on with your life and stop complaining about... Uh, your, your corrupt politicians. I mean, of course they're, they're criminals. Like ours are criminal too, but you complaining, is not going to change anything. So I don't know. They're, they're like the, the philosophy of a Bruce Lee. If you ever, if you ever read some of his quotes, they're, <laughs> they're really good actually, but it's always like, you know, the old man and the young man, they will meet in the middle, you know, and, and, and then there'll be unity, be like water. You know, it's like, it's like, what, yeah. what is this? Like their, their brain is just so interestingly unique. It's uh, yeah. it's nothing like it. Uh, you know, Americans and Westerners in general have a political worldview as though they live in a Swiss canton but don't participate in any of their local politics. So it's almost like they can't conceptualize a, uh, uh, a government that isn't extremely responsive to their political needs. Um, so this like, uh, here's what you're going to take and, uh, you know, you'll like it type government. They don't like it. And Europe 
didn't have a lot of those throughout its history. Um, but what's interesting is they don't actually participate in the small governments that could respond to their political needs in some way. Uh, it's really bizarre. It's almost like we're trapped in this transition period between, uh, you know, these small uh, legalistic, uh, le- legally and socially complicated governing structures and the massive power of Globo Homo. And people haven't realized yet which one that they're actually living in, you know, and I think that's a lot of the naivety is, you know, what about the First Amendment? What about the Second Amendment? You know, it kind of illustrates the point I'm trying to make is, yeah, I guess at one point in time, uh, having a right to a fair and speedy trial was probably something that every American felt like he did and should have access to. But, man, things have really changed. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, (laughs) but we don't live there anymore. Well, Um, um, a friend of uh, the show, and I hope uh, he doesn't mind me mentioning some of the things he was um, informing me about, um, I I won't reveal specifics of his background, of course, but uh, he's a lawyer, and he told me that in, uh, I don't know when this was developed, but let's just say uh, Victorian England or before... Uh, I don't, I'm not super up on on the all the eras of English history, but obviously uh, the American legal system comes from the British, and the the system there was really developed originally for the wealthy and the landed, and all those disputes where you kind of go to court were designed for people who had to deal with like large tracts of property. And it was maybe issues of inheritance or there was a tax that the, the king was demanding. And it was really a place for the wealthy to sort out property uh, issues. It, it, has, it really was, had nothing to do with, I think, what the people's court uh, you know, version of you know, television right. in America has Love sort of show. given people yeah. the impression that, that you know, they can have their day in court and, and everything will be settled uh, fair and justly. The reality is the original system was designed for the wealthy and the uh, the system required obviously a very good understanding of how to get what you wanted done in order to get the large amount of uh, wealth uh, uh, appropriately allocated uh, in a way that justified spending the amounts on uh, legal fees and, and attorneys. Uh, and, and it was never really meant for the common man. Uh, and somehow the notion in America is that this is how it's supposed to be for the little people. And it really is, if you've ever gone to court, it's incredibly inefficient. Uh, it, it is not very just, uh, at least a fair amount of the time, uh, especially if you incorporate the fact that our juries are completely brainwashed from day zero in this country and going against anything that is outside the narrative. I mean, you're, you're, you're running uphill and swimming up the creek. It's... Um, it's very difficult uh, to combat that. It's hard to get an objective opinion uh, in in court. Uh, people's opinions bias everything, and of course they have the vaudeur process. But uh, if you don't really know what you're doing, and if if you can't navigate the waters, it's very difficult to get what you've done. So in other words, it, it requires a lot of money, uh, and the uh, just again, like the expectations are just not realistic for most people. Um, so his advice is basically, yeah, avoid the courts if you can, uh, if you're a normal person. It's interesting. Uh, you know, this does tie back to places like Afghanistan because most of their legal issues are handled locally outside of any kind. There is no like, national 
uh, court system, if you will. And uh, which brings up an interesting kind of observation that's been made over the many decades. One of the key grievances that the little people have is they don't have any kind of uh, justice system. They don't have judges. They don't have uh, places where hearings can be had and have third parties listen and make decisions in an expedited manner, right? So the English legal system is extremely complex and was designed for property owners. And the more property you had, the more involved you had to be with it. But you had common law too, which was basically settled by leaders on your street or in your neighborhood or in your area, wherever your village that you lived, there would be trusted people that would vouch for you. Just kept following a basic set of guidelines. And almost all of society worked that way. You know, like, well, I vouch for this guy. If he does X, Y, and Z, then I'll have to show up and pay this. And what they did was they would design these schemes so that so many people were wrapped up in them that rather than let this whole chain fall apart because one person screwed up, other people would kind of step in, throw in a little bit, and then resolve the issue. So, uh, for example, if a family member got killed, instead of having like an endless blood feud, you might have multiple people on both sides vouch for surviving members or the accused and then just pitch in money until they got enough to like basically end the issue there. And that still goes on in places like Iraq and Afghanistan today to this day. And it goes on because there's, there's no way the national court system could onboard all of the, these issues. And not only is there no way, there's no way it would be less corrupt than the local, which is already pretty corrupt, right? So we have seen this over and over again, is that one of the reasons why people are willing to to take more and more extreme political action is they feel like that right now I'm completely vulnerable. No one can vouch for me. No one can say that, uh, yes, I own this property and help me protect it in a social sense. So if we don't get out there and get involved right now, even with violent groups, uh, we will have nothing at the end of the day. And that's where you, you, you're able to see these groups generate bodies. And uh, they say, it may not be perfect. It may not be exactly what I like. But I know at the end of the day, if my neighbor steals a sheep out of my pen, then I can call the local Taliban commander and he'll put six people on a board. They'll both hear both our sides and they'll make a decision before noon. And at that point, someone's going to pay something to somebody else or they're going to get shot. And that's the kind of social stability that they are looking for. And uh, that's the kind of social stability that drove most of uh, early American history. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, frontier lawyers were few and far between. So how did things get resolved? Right. Same with Europe, early Europe. Uh, the little people can't afford to take up any time in a courtroom. And they're not arguing over anything that would justify the cost anyway. So they end up resolving them with these kind of more complicated social structures that they had a very very interesting fascinating way that they're designed but you know whenever um whenever isis was defeated in iraq so it, it was pretty well known basically from the beginning that they didn't stand a chance the only question was like how's it going to go and how long is it going to take and towards the end uh once everybody realized that the only people left in the country fighting were the foreign fighters from Europe that couldn't go back, and they were basically on a suicide mission, they, they were asking the question, what are we going to do with all the Iraqis that participated in ISIS violence, either under uh, duress or coercion or voluntarily? 
And there was, I'm not kidding, a legitimate proposal that we train and stand up an entire national justice system specifically for that issue. Not, I, I don't guess anybody was aware involved in that idea was aware of the scope of all the crimes, the personal and property crimes that had been occurring <laughs> over that, that period. But I can't even describe how massive the violence was. I mean, it was shocking even for me. And, uh, you know, somebody had to stand up and say, hey, you know, maybe you guys should learn a little bit about how people in these places handle business because the cost of doing what you're asking would be tremendous, not just in terms of money, but time and resources that these people don't have. They need to just have an answer and move on with their life. And that's what they're, the answer they're going to take. So if they say, hey, this guy gives you three cows and you call it good because he killed your cousin, to them that's better than uh, the guy going to a prison hole somewhere in Baghdad, uh, which is where most ISIS guys came from anyhow, by the way. <laughs> they just got released and went to Syria. But, uh, you know, they would just rather take the cows. And in a, in a world where practical considerations trump uh, lofty notions about the justice system that works almost every time and it cuts these feuds off and it stops these things from escalating out of control and it's only when dumb liberals interfere that those problems actually keep stacking up instead of getting resolved the natural way so yeah i don't know i thought that was kind of interesting um because both those countries kind of share that similar one of their top grievances is has always been there's no expeditious way to resolve uh, legal complaints. Um, and that's a big one. You know, you don't think about it because we don't really have that issue here yet. Um, but boy, you can start to imagine it now, just looking around and seeing how the court system works. You're like, wow, man, this could really go quick. But, uh, yeah, that's another long rambling session there. But Well, I, I hear the blockchain will be handling our legal disagreements soon with uh, right. Ethereum <laughs> contracts. Joke, I've seen some fun, like, well, we don't, we don't need to go full, full autiste here, but uh, <laughs> there, there are some very interesting uh, projects around uh, uh, sort of, God damn it. I, now I have to say it justice as a service. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, justice is a service and oh it definitely is if you go if you go down once you see a society broken down almost down to its roots and you see like how close violence is every every day to people's lives and how much they think about it and how much it's integrated into their decision making process you you start to understand justice in a completely different way than what you grew up watching on television or you know, maybe when you paid a traffic ticket or something, that process is just has refined all the natural aspects out of it. And it's just a giant efficient grift in the U.S. But man, down at that level, it's like people are making really um, they're really embracing the reality that the justice system can only be run by the people with the ability to enact violence like right now not like i'm going to send somebody down there in three weeks and maybe he'll arrest you if you don't i mean like right now right right outside this building (laughs) and that's what they want right because they want this resolved they don't want it going months and months at a time right and it's and it's a letter in the mail for them ability (laughs) to be resolved right like there's so many things in the u.s that 
you use the legal system or the legal system is imposed on people right. with no intention or prospect of actually solving whatever problem exists. Yep. It's just a process that's self, uh, self-sustaining, just runs for its own uh, internal purposes and with its own internal logic, but with a result that satisfies absolutely no one. Right. Like if two guys show up trying to make a deal, like they both want to make a deal and there's really no, uh, there's no way to make the U S legal system do that. So you see all these weird, uh, side routes where, well, we realize that the regular justice system is completely unworkable. So we're going to have special drug courts and right. we're going to have special uh, small claim courts. We're going to have special landlord tenant courts. We're going to have special courts for all of the situations that people actually run into on a day to day basis. Half of them, of which we won't even call them courts, it'll be your local zoning board or just like the cop that shows up. Uh, and it's you know, the situations that the Afghans are running into on a day-to-day basis is literally exactly what your average English court case was about circa like 1600 or whatever. Like, oh, your cow like ran onto my field and it damaged my fence, but the fence was broken down to begin with, but that's only because you built a dam and your river undermined my foundation by the way, like you screwed my sister and that's got to be worth something. Right. And (laughs) like, but you know, we got to be neighbors. So, uh, let's, uh, let's go and hash out this whole situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the whole man, there's so much that could go into that. You know, when you, when you're an Afghan and you're looking out over a field and like 60 of your relatives are buried within a short walking distance of your house, it, the way you're looking at all these issues is completely different. Like you're saying, you're, you gotta be my neighbor. It's like, exactly. <laughs> His 60 are buried on the other side of that field. Nobody's going anywhere except in that hole at the end of the, their life. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting how much, you know, and it, it's not like Americans and Europeans have never dealt with this sort of reality. You know, it's been like part of every human group's existence at some point. We're just in America. We're so detached from it now. We don't even see livestock get slaughtered. We just get the beef at the store, right? We're we're completely isolated from the facts of life and the reality of life. And it's going to be interesting. Uh, I think you know, in our lifetimes, hopefully, uh, our long lives, uh, we'll see it. We'll start to see that reality kind of poking its head through the veil. I'm I'm going to be interested to see how people respond. I, I think they'll. Come well, and through. we're currently such a rich country that we can let a lot of things slide. Mm-hmm. It's like if you've got the neighbor from hell, it's like oh well, just move. Right. <laughs> it's like all right. Well, I mean, I guess that's a solution. Uh, if that's uh, that's a solution, like that works really great at solving a number of uh, a number of problems, like. That's uh, that's only a solution where it's like, well, I'll just find another job because there's mm-hmm. a robust economy. Right. There's like a fungible labor economy where like I do a job, this job exists somewhere else. There's not like a local cartel 
of chemical right. engineers uh, on this other side. I mean, yeah. <laughs> sometimes there is, but right, yeah. theoretically. <laughs> well, like, I think I what you're, you're describing are all the conditions of insurgents. You're starting, like, I mean, they're obvious ones, right? You don't have to be a genius to, to come up with all these um, enormous number of lists of things that the government makes. But, you know, everybody's... Uh, question is well, what? Why isn't? Why aren't people in the United States more upset or doing more? And it's like, well, you have all these kind of buffers between extreme political behavior. I'm not talking about violence, but just more pointed, poignant political behavior, and what we have now. And mobility is one, and like workforce is one, and re access to resources is one. So it's like if you have problems with your neighbor who flies a BLM flag or vice versa, you can just move. But you can't just move in most places in the world. There's nowhere to move to because the people in your, the new neighborhood won't let you move in. <laughs> so they're not going to sell you that land because it belongs to their family. So you can see how much more rapidly people escalate to extreme political behaviors in places like that. So when people ask me, when's it going to happen? I always say... Well, look at all the, the buffers that are in place now. And when you start seeing those get removed, then you're getting much closer. And it doesn't take a one by one. You know, you don't you don't have to say, OK, well, it'll be this one and then this one and then this one. It can all happen at once. It, a lot of them can happen simultaneously. So, you know, with the covid restrictions and the travel stuff like, man, that is just a they're going to have to be very careful with how they play that game, because when you start limiting people's mobility, you're putting him literally physically in a corner. And that's where a lot of people in these third world countries that we go to, that's where they live all the time. So it's not really a shocker when they go completely crazy and do what would seem to be irrational things to an American. So, you know, that to me, that's the way I analyze that is I just say, well, let's look at all the things that prevent people from doing the stuff that you're thinking they should be thinking, doing, um, and when those are gone, then you'll probably see it. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with like the inherent character of Americans. I, I get so tired of this really lazy, uh, politically convenient argument that there's just something wrong with Americans. Uh, they're they're just too Christian, or you know, they're too uh, lazy, or uh, they're not cultured enough, uh, or pampered. Like none of those things are really true about Americans. Uh, it's just that there's a unique set of conditions that exist here a unique set that exists in European countries and a unique set that exists in places like Afghanistan. And you have to look at those specific scenarios and ask yourself, what's preventing this from happening? And then if you're trying to create an insurgency, which some governments are, they start chipping away at those things. They're like, yeah, let's get rid of that. Let's destabilize the justice system locally. Let's, you know, let's make, let's get rid of this industry here. You know, so. Well, I, I think I think the two, I guess, major things I want to ask you, especially since we we talked uh, last time, was uh, we've had. Well, let, let's focus on Afghanistan for a moment. So now that we're officially leaving the country, um, there must have been some high-level military brass. Uh, concessions being made on this one because obviously you know the the more warfare the Pentagon can get the happier it is uh, so 
what what's what's the concession to them if they give up this conflict now that they're sort of not really involved in Iraq as much anymore what's next and then domestically what's next given the uh, justice department is pointing fingers at its own citizens now so those are the kind of the two big topics I'm curious about your thoughts on uh, yeah I, I mean I I think um I think you implied the obvious uh, which is that those are related. Uh, so uh, the deal is that we're going to designate uh, white people that aren't cucks in this way. And uh, if we ask you to step up to the plate, you're going to do it. And I don't really know uh, these people personally, don't have a desire to know them personally, but um, it, it was a very hard sell to get commanders to pull out of Afghanistan even five years ago. It's been talked about off and on. The, the media would do like a little A-B test with articles and it's time to leave Afghanistan. And then a flurry of general officers would come out talking about how this is a terrible idea. And, um, you know, we can't forget the sacrifices of everybody. We got to see this through, man. Not really seeing that now. Um, seeing some articles from generals, retired generals are saying, yeah, we need to. It's the time. You know, now's the time. I'm seeing a lot of other people making statements about how, uh, you know, uh, January 6th has changed the way that we have to look at uh, the threats to America. And, you know, it's all about threats from within. So, you know, if this isn't like a coordinated effort to uh, desensitize people to this idea of the U.S. military being proactive uh, in acting against the or for the political interests of the Department of Justice, I don't really know what it is if it's not desensitization, but, um, you know, there's always got to remember that the forefront of U.S. foreign policy strategy is Zionist in nature, period. And what's good for Israel is what American military and diplomatic power is going to do and economic power is going to do, period. So if they're leaving Afghanistan, it's not because they've changed their position on that. So they may have a different place they want to go or a different thing they want to do or different resources that or resources they want to expend elsewhere, but it will be in pursuit of that goal, period. Um, it's not really up for debate. Anybody that's been involved can look at the uh, strategic imperatives, and that's what it's been since, I don't know, 30 years plus now, and it hasn't changed. Domestically is what's changed, you know, 20 years ago after 9-11, boy, they really had to dig deep for all those farm boys in the Midwest and all those hunters and outdoorsmen in the South and oh, tell them that, you know, best thing they can do is sign up and, you know, go kill some terrorists. And they milked that for 15 years. But around 2013, 2014, you could start to see the shift, you know, well, these guys are kind of politically inconvenient. You know, they, they've all done 10 tours each, but it's time to kind of swap them out for some more um, egalitarian and liberal-minded college graduates. And uh, the transformation's been very rapid. You know, a lot of the troops now have uh, bachelor's degrees or high-level educations, especially in uh, high-demand fields like uh, soft, like special operations and linguistics and intel and things of that nature. Um, these people are coming in with four-year degrees or master's degrees and then pursuing advanced degrees once they're in. And all of that education biases 
the groups that they're being drawn from, right? If you, if I need um, a thousand bodies for this unit um, at all times, and I have to pick a hundred new ones every year from the gen pop, and I'm picking all 100 of them from college graduate pool, what's my liberal bias going to be? It's going to be pretty high um, because that's where you're drawing them from is the indoctrination centers. The days of uh, having old private Joe Snuffy from uh, Mississippi or something signing up, making it to high rank in the enlisted ranks and being influential, those are going away. You know, it's now it's not you're not from Mississippi. You're from uh, Ole Miss University. Right. Or you're from, uh, you know, North Dakota State or something. You know, that's how people identify now is with their indoctrination center. So I had to throw that in there, but <laughs> it's kind of. I don't know. I don't know how else to call what what to call the university system if it's not that. I mean, you can just see the results of it. It's unbelievable. But you know, it used to just be the officers, but now it's everybody, top to bottom. So it's just pretty wild. Did, did I understand that correctly? You said that most of the soldiers have college degrees or officers. Um, not most of the soldiers. So all the officers do. I think there's a like a few very um, uh, exceptions to that, but. I think it's like 30 to 50% of special operations soldiers have uh, college degrees and a, a, a pretty decent chunk of them have advanced degrees. Well, that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but, uh, um, it's not a bad thing, but when you make it a gate that, well, I, I actually do think it's a bad thing. Yeah. I think soft was one of these places where you, you were already, you're already screening guys for IQ. You're already screening guy for genetic deficiencies and physical fitness and then character assessments, which are endless mm -hmm. and ongoing. Mm -hmm. you, you've found what you need. Right. Right. You don't yeah. need to go to a university to, to be a specialist in this field. And that's what you are. You're very specialized. And what's happened is they're saying like, well, what we really want you guys to do is learn the language that people use these days. We, we want you to learn the way that the corporate world thinks and the way that the officers think so that you can communicate on the same wavelength. And what's happened is you're creating this monoculture of, uh, it's like kind of a ranged liberal belief system that people get, you know, from the kind of conservative liberalism to all the way to like full blown Bill Crystal, uh, global homo for everybody, uh, endless global warfare, liberalism like that's kind of your <laughs> the belief system that gets generated by this everyone goes to college um mentality that's going on i mean now it's it's mandatory if you want to make certain ranks you have to have a four-year degree so and that's well, only on the enlisted side well I, I guess what i was uh wondering about is how technical are these degrees i mean it's sounding like they're not it sounds like they're like something in uh international relations or some nonsense like that. I mean, it, it yeah. but you know, people like uh, Jimmy Carter, our great one-term president, um, he had a naval background, I think, and he went to uh, nuclear engineering, uh, which mm -hmm. I thought was impressive. So, I mean, I wouldn't mind having some of the higher level officers having some technical knowledge, including foreign language skills. But if you're, if you're just talking about it sounds like the impression is you're getting that a lot of these guys are just doing kind of the humanities as opposed to the, the more um, practical degrees. 
I suppose that's where I would agree with you that it's uh, it's more for political conformity and compliance rather than actually making a more effective uh, warfighter, which I, I do see some value in having some training in. But also, you know, you can do that training in the military. I, mean, I don't necessarily right. understand. I mean, they had the Monterey Language School for that reason. Yeah, it had nothing to yeah. do with the, the mainline university system. So, yeah. No, I, you, if you went to a language school at a university system, you would be years, years and years behind a good graduate of Monterey or some of the other yeah. language schools. We have, we have a ton yeah. of language schools, but man, we're talking about people spend a solid year only studying language, whereas you get a, a class a week for like an hour and a half at university mm-hmm. like not we we've had these guys oh yeah i took arabic at university i took uh urdu and it's like they can barely order breakfast you know it's like look man this is two, two totally different things we're talking about we're not talking about the academic pursuit of language we're talking about like get out there and actually speak <laughs> mm-hmm. so, um mm-hmm. but that that's that's the point that i think all reasonable people were making was that if if you have an issue with people's formal writing not being so strong because they don't have haven't done this since high school, you know, 25, 30 years ago, sometimes longer than that, didn't have a formal writing course. It's not as though the government hasn't taught writing courses for specific types of report writing in the past. I mean, those go on every single day. So if you have specific issues, then just train on those issues. But that's not really where it went. What it wants is they want a a whole person transformation. And this is the kind of language they use, right? We want to broaden your, you know, your, understanding of the world and mm-hmm. what what do those things really mean who understands more about the world than people who travel around all over the world and see people in yeah. different environmental of conditions of right <laughs> um so it's it's you know in a perfect society um all your soldiers could go get a classical education and in the liberal arts i would be very proud of that for them to have a education and economics and you know uh mathematics and things of that nature that were so so great uh in america and europe before but that's not what's going on now and everybody knows that's not the game nobody's going for advanced degrees in mathematics they're trying to get their stupid humanities degree out of the way so that they can get promoted um and that comes with a whole lot of bullshit pardon my language so and they know that's what they know that's what's getting carried with it that's why they prefer it. What, what do you think of this? Uh, I don't know. Call it a détente with uh, or attempted détente with with China, uh, but <laughs> the Chinese don't s- seem to have the same uh, game plan. If you look at that summit they held in Anchorage with the um, yeah. <laughs> what was that? Blinken, Anthony Blinken. Yeah, I forget what role he has. I mean, just chief zionist <laughs> but, yeah, uh, secretary of state right i don't know it doesn't matter but uh they all just they all just share notes I, and pursue the same stuff um but what what's going on there i mean it, it seems like they're they're trying to do something there uh they're moving semiconductor plants to the united states out of taiwan mm-hmm. what, what's going on well the semiconductor thing is interesting because they there were going to be several built in the U.S. 15 years ago, and China went hardcore economic warfare to make sure that didn't happen because they really like having that uh, semiconductor control of that market, and they do. 
pretty crazy uh, how far the U.S. is behind on that. But, you know, at this point, the U.S. would have to pretty much give China uh, the whole gold mine to, to be able to compete in a market with China and semiconductors. Um, they just can't, we can't even afford to get good terms on that because China has so much control of the market and the consumption and production side. So it's like, how, how are you going to win this unless the state, the government of the United States just steps in and says, we're subsidizing it. We just need production. Go. And that's really what China doesn't think the U.S. is ever going to really do um, for obvious reasons. But, um, yeah, I think what's going on now is kind of written underneath the uh, Zionist goals was like, oh, and if anybody asks, China's our, our biggest foreign adversary in terms of, uh, you know, not like, uh, what's the term they use? Competitor, biggest global competitor, right? Uh, near peer, I guess, is some, the hot phrase they're trying to drop everywhere in the last 10 years or so. Um, and that was kind of like cover for the endless Zionist wars that go on all the time. But I don't think anybody was ever really serious about beating China at anything. Um, I think the capital owning class in the country just understands that China represents an a massive, amazing uh, utility for the finance system here. And by the way, this is something that's not really uh, harped on enough when it comes to foreign policy and U.S. strategy. Finance is like right at the top. Like that's the highest level stuff they talk about. And the ability to dump U.S. dollars across the world at will and have like willing parties to this scheme is extremely important. But the more important that becomes, the more powerful the people that are onboarding all these dollars become and holding them, you know, for indeterminate periods of time. And that's what China does. You know, so the U.S. exported its industrial capacity. They turned China into a giant industrial park for the U.S., and uh, in exchange, pretty much, we send them dollars and they send us plastic crap. And that's completely unsolvable without an absolute, complete reforming of the U.S. government structure. Well, the, like, the unfortunate thing is... Total fascism is required it, to defeat it's, this. It's problem. not just plastic crap anymore. So you have anymore. Like a globo homo I mean, establishment running our government. And you have China, which is like in a, a relentless, pragmatic uh, yeah. adversary economic and otherwise across the world there's literally nothing that's going to stop this train wreck so people making deals with china i mean biden coming in soft on china trump talking a lot of trash about china but not actually doing anything these are all indicators of the actual position the u.s is in yep and it's like uh talks like conor mcgregor but then like breaks leg like conor mcgregor that's kind of like what's going on <laughs> with u.s Dude, Con conor mcgregor is like what so, five nine i mean the guy's and, not, and not not we're a not making man, any but... steps to stopping watch their out for the anywhere. short guys dude they're hardcore going after central africa and parts of southern africa and parts of northern africa and the u.s has kind of got presence there and you know oh we're doing some counterterrorism stuff here and we're doing some anti-narcotic stuff over here but it's like a little pimple on the map of Africa compared to what China's doing. And China's going after infrastructure and industry and production. And the U.S. Well, is going after, uh, what was it, but sex in Botswana. You know, that's like kind of our pretext. about right. So, man, it, it just, it looks really sad right now, to be honest. Well, <laughs> Everybody see, sees you too. What I see going on in the media now I mean, that's is... why China can talk trash about the U.S. Secretary of State in front of the entire world. 
and the guy makes a fool out of himself and and nothing happens you know he just flies back to dc and you know i thought it was great design stuff he does every day for the, for the record i thought it was fantastic yeah take the l blinken well i i guess i would close up and this has always been what fascinates me is looking at other parts of the world that are that have radically different environments than our own and, and trying to figure out what, what are the things that distinguish them from us. So when you see a place like Afghanistan, uh, it's like teetering on the edge of extremely violent, extreme violence and turmoil. I don't think as Americans that you can say, okay, that, that we're very, we're very far away from there or that can't happen here because uh, of a single factor or, you know, um, you know, we're not landlocked or whatever the case may be. Uh, some of these kind of silly uh, perspectives that people have on it. I think the important thing is to say, to look at what's going on there and find the commonalities between the trending future for the United States. And if you do that, then it, you drag it out of the, uh, very boring world about what is the Taliban and what kind of government would be best for Afghanistan and you know all these questions that are really unimportant and you start looking around and saying like man what what should we be doing uh, right now if the trend is for governments state and federal to restrict travel and require specialized passports and designate entire groups of people as terrorists who are completely nonviolent and have committed no crimes, you know? And to me, that's, I, I look at Afghanistan and I think to myself, like, wow, <laughs> we're not, we're not really that far off from this sort of insane, uh, completely, uh, fractal social and political existence in, in the United States right now. Uh, that to me, I, I see it as what might be a, a version of that might be in our inevitable future, unfortunately. So, I mean, we can end it there, or we can kind of have a back and forth. I have some thoughts on this. I don't know. If yeah, go ahead. We, well, we'll... that's our traditional downer, man. Yeah, you yeah, sure yeah, you yeah, want yeah. to lighten the mood? Mm. No. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to know uh, what's going to happen. And so, um, you know, we have a, a very knowledgeable guest um, <clears throat> that I thought I'd do a little debating with. Uh, not really debate necessarily, but... I, I do, I, I do want to challenge the notion that the United States is going to look like Afghanistan. I mean, I don't think you're saying that necessarily, and I, I definitely agree with the the assessment that because I've made this assessment that the federal government is ginning up a whether it's a manufactured or a genuine conflict with some of its uh, dissident population. No question about that. Uh, but how does it un unfold is kind of what I'm a little bit unsure of. And given the big differences with the uh, United States and the uh, far-flung province of the global world island empire or something uh, in Afghanistan, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's your home territory. Uh, it's shared by many millions of people who don't all live in the mountains. There is a very diversified, uh, however deindustrialized it may be, uh, still relatively high valued economy 
that is not uh, something that the ruling class is going to want to destroy because it's going to undermine their own power and wealth. Uh, so I think there's going to be a much more targeted campaign against people who basically just speak out. I don't think it's a, uh, occupy and, and patrol kind of situation that you're going to, uh, see here. Like we had in Afghanistan to a limited degree and to a greater degree in, in Iraq. Um, I think it's more akin to what really what happened in the Soviet Soviet system where there was just a unpersoning of your dissident population and a uh, disappearing of them to either unemployment or confinement to their house where they're under house arrest because they didn't take uh, the 17th uh, booster shot for the vaccine. Um, and I think that's really how it's going to roll out here. I don't think there's going to be uh, Rambo three, uh, helicopters going through the Rockies and, and or the Appalachians shooting out the last holdouts of America. Now, many, many people have fantasized about that on sort of the dissident side uh, as sort of like a, a forcing function for bringing people to one side or the other. I just don't see it realistically happening because, again, uh, you're, the ruling class is going to undermine its credibility to a great degree. I don't think they're that stupid. And they're also going to undermine their wealth and power. Cause I mean, look at the costs it took to patrol this, uh, pissant country in central Asia. It was in the trillions. I mean, what is the cost of a civil war in, in your home territory where your, your own infrastructure and, uh, military bases and, and, uh, entire, entire command and control structure under threat. Like I, I don't see that being affordable, uh, or at least, uh, strategically, intelligent for the ruling class. I think they're really just going to try to do a Soviet style, uh, roundup, um, in, in the sort of Americanized soft, uh, soft, uh, glove with an iron fist kind of way. That's kind of my forecast. Um, uh, I agree. I, I actually agree with you on that. I guess what I would say is my perspective on Afghanistan is a little bit different. Um, but what I'm, referring to with Afghanistan is a complete illegitimacy of the central power of the country. Mm-hmm. So it, it's completely, uh, gosh, well, I can't think of the word right now. There's no central authority in the country. There's Kabul and a couple other major Metro areas live under some semblance of rule of law. And the rest of the country just kind of shrugs their shoulders at the edicts of the governing power there. And the way I see America going is once you have taken away enough incentives for people to kind of respect the legitimacy of the main system, then those people just withdraw from it in every sort of imaginable way. And I I don't like this Red Dawn idea of like Wolverines and this Kurt Doolittle approach for how this works. I, I don't really see that how it goes. I think it, what it becomes is just a gradual or even a rapid social and political and economic divisions. And what happens is one one little effort or one little issue, key issue, wedge issue will break through. Right. If it's covid restrictions, then that's what it is. like Passports or booster shots or if it's uh, anti-white teaching in public schools, if it's zoning regulations, something, right, public housing at the federal level, something will break through. And then behind that pours all kinds of other issues on that precedent. 
and people start to see we can just say no. And the only way they can stop us is to physically do it. Um, and if they do that, then they lose legitimacy even more rapidly. And what eventually happens is the government ends up being the conservative position, the state, because they're, they see the same battlefield the same way. So they start giving slow concessions over time, and it becomes like a slow dying of the whole state, really. And then around it, around these other groups of people that are kind of resisting that central power, uh, a new state will eventually form uh, based on how well they're structured and organized and what kind of uh, agreements they have between one another. But I mean, that's, that's honestly how the United States formed itself out of the Articles of Confederation and from the British as British colonies. I mean, this is like the slow uh, rejection of the legitimacy of the current system. And then you kind of get behind the strong horse and you prop up the new system. And then usually there's a turmoil period where several competing systems go after each other. And then one will kind of eventually win out. And it's usually based on its ability to give the most people the most stability. So, no, I, I don't say when I say Afghanistan, I don't, I don't mean like, U.S. invasion, like fighting gun battles in villages all over the country. What I mean is that it's the same way that this hopeless battle plans that U.S. government leaders and generals would come up with for stabilizing the outlying areas. I mean, that's that's the same position that our central government's going to be in. They're going to be looking at Tupelo and uh, Oklahoma and like, what do we <laughs> Do we even need to mess with these people at this point? <laughs> you know, what's right. it going to cost to get a million booster shots into Mississippi and Oklahoma right now? You know, it's like just, just let them do it. And then that compromise—it's like a chain of compromises, right? It's like, well, Oklahoma's its own special circumstance, and we'll just hold off right now. And then that compromise leads to another one, and then to another one, and then the people in the local area start saying, "Well, if you want us to do that, then we want this." And that first concession that they get, they realize how the game is played. And then their concessions, they start demanding more and more and more. And this is where, unfortunately, the violence ratchets it up, ratchets up, ratchets up. Because once people see that they can get concessions, they will do a lot to get the biggest concessions imaginable. Because they've seen, like, oh, it actually works. And the way it is now, we, ever, we get nothing. We show up, we vote, we get nothing. And but people still believe that you can get change through voting. Uh, a lot of people do, or they certainly haven't conceptualized another way to get change. But unfortunately, once you actually start getting changes, get your demands met, that's when people start getting crazy ideas. And uh, that's what you see and we've seen all over the world, you know. And from America, we always think, why would they do that? You know, they had a good thing going and then they escalated it times a million. And if, unless you're there and you see what's happening, you don't realize like they're trying to hit that break point because once they hit the break point, they've done an unimaginable violence. And now the only response is a devastating uh, overreaction or give the concession. And it's very cheap and easy to create devastating violence in places like the Philippines or uh, Yemen or Afghanistan or Iraq. And it's very, very hard to do a very controlled response that can actually stop them. So concessions end up being the main currency when that happens. This mission's important, John. I want you to come with me to help me lead the team. What do you say, John? 
I put in my time. What's that mean? It means my war's over. He never draws first blood. He only fights back. The first time was for himself. The second time was for his country. This time... Rambo! Something went wrong. It's for his friend. Trumpman was a good man, and I'm really very sorry. You're just leaving him? What do you expect us to do? Send in a Delta team? Create an international incident? What about me? By the way you look, I can see you have no experience in war, do you? Fired a few shots. That if you're captured, we'll deny any participation or even knowledge of your existence. Sounds familiar. John Rambo. You'll find out. I know he's your friend. <laughs> but you cannot do this. You both will die. For what? Because you do it for me. What do you think this man is? God! Oh, God, we have mercy. He wants Nightmare. Stallone. Rambo 3. I'm sorry I got you into this, John. No, you're not.